This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This is Design School. On this episode, we interview Cheryl Kababa, an executive creative director at Artifact in Seattle. Cheryl talks with us about the experience of designing in the Netherlands, how living abroad helped develop an ability to question the systems ingrained in our own culture, and how we should consider unintended consequences in our own design process. Cheryl Kababa, thank you so much for being on This Is Design School. We greatly appreciate your time. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. How did you discover design? What was the initial spark? Yeah, so I was basically a student in the 90s in political science and Mm -hmm. in journalism. And those are actually what my degrees are in. But I think through my journalism school, which was at Syracuse, I started taking design courses and decided that I wanted to do a thesis in design. So I went ahead and did that. Didn't have the follow through to actually get a degree, but came out of that as a working designer in the journalism industry. And I was working at the Seattle Times initially and just sort of continued doing the design side of things as more or less passion project combined with my interest in technology. So I was like building my own websites and what have you. Mm -hmm. Ended up building an internal website for the Seattle Times because it was the 90s when people didn't like always know how to do that type of thing. And they just let you do it. (laughs) Sorry? They just let you do it? Yeah, they just let me do it. So I was like, I have an idea. Why don't I build you guys an intranet? And they were like okay, well, I don't think there's anyone else here who knows how to do that, so cool. So I found a server where I could host it there and basically hand-coded the whole thing and then used that to get a job at Microsoft and sort of my history as a UX designer is that's where it started. Awesome. Welcome to the 90s, right? The, I mean, it was kind of like the Wild West. If you, yeah. If you, if you had a keyboard and a screen, you were a programmer. That's exactly right. So it was kind of like I actually in college had built, I was writing haiku about spam. Spam, like the food, because I'm Filipino, so we that's what we eat. And I had a series of haiku that I had written about it and then used that to build a website about my spam haiku. Um, so I learned HTML, so I'd be able to do that. It's like such a weird thing, like you're passionate about this one thing and you're like, well, this is maybe a good opportunity to learn how to code. And so that's kind of how it started. I kind of wish I had saved it and it were up there somewhere. Um, I was going to say, do you remember one of the haikus? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I do not. I've looked for it in my many hard drives many times, and I just like cannot find any evidence that that ever existed. But it did. I promise. Other people know about it. Yeah. <laughs> so Microsoft, and then right, and then I worked at I worked at Microsoft for quite a while. And also uh, Getty Images, I kind of uh, dipped in and out of as a UX designer. And then 
I moved with my family to the Netherlands and spent 10 years there working for organizations like Philips and then as a design consultant for Adaptopath and Frog. Mm. In 2015, we moved back to Seattle and that's when I started working at Artifact, which is local design consultancy here just in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Which is where we are now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like working and living abroad? Yeah, so I moved there not for, I actually got a couple of interesting experiences um, working and living in the Netherlands. So mm-hmm. the first being that I was, the organization I was working for, Getty Images, I started out working there as a remote member of their team. So I actually got to experience remote work <laughs> for the first time. Uh, the team I was working with was based in London, so I would go there every few weeks just to work with them. And uh, I thought that was that was really interesting. I thought it suited me pretty well. And I haven't really gotten the opportunity to do that formally since. So that's one thing I'm a big advocate from afar of is just like, I think remote work is an interesting path for a lot of people. And then working at Philips, which is basically, there's hundreds of designers at Philips. It's a very design-centric organization. And I got a lot of experience there of sort of finally working in a place where design is taken super seriously as a discipline and practice and not just like as a side gig. I think if you look at kind of the late 90s and early 2000s in tech especially, uh, design was kind of just like supplementary to development. And so working in an organization where it felt truly design-led was revelatory, especially in the way that there were many different silos of design disciplines and I wasn't necessarily considered the generalist that I thought myself to be. Mm -hmm. So I was put in sort of the slot of information architect and I'm like, this is just like one facet of what I do, but then ended up being like an information architect (laughs) for the next like two years. Um, And constantly trying to do other things just felt not super accessible because there were specialists in those areas. So if we're talking about design research, they had an army of design researchers. So you can sit in on, you know, basically design research sessions, but that's, you're, you're never going to lead data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I learned a lot in that organization, but after that I went into consulting which I think is what suits me best because one, I don't have a lot of attention span, so it means I can sort of jump from domain to domain and learn a lot about different spaces. So it could be healthcare or education or um, consumer technology. And I know that as a design researcher now and strategist that I will be able to learn everything that I can possibly absorb about that subject in the time span of like 12 to 16 weeks. And then I'll be like, okay, what now, now I'm about to work on something that has to do with robotic surgery. What can I learn about that? And be able to dip into that. And I think it really suits my sort of, I just kind of have a natural curiosity about things I don't just that I know nothing about and trying to get a broad perspective on it. So the other week I was at a conference in Copenhagen and I was invited to a dinner with information security experts. And they were just like, oh, there's going to be seven of them and uh, 
you know, there's one extra slot and this person who was who had seen me speak at this conference in Copenhagen was like, do you want to come? And I'm like, yeah, I know nothing about information security. Why not? And it was like one of the most interesting dinners I've ever attended. I felt like it was definitely my community in terms of, you know, I run around a lot these days talking about unintended consequences of technology. These people are the most comfortable about talking about unintended consequences of technology. You can ask them anything. You could be like, what's the scariest thing that you think will happen this year? Well, the energy system is going to be attacked in a country. And they, they can just like yeah. kind of talk about it with very even keeled manner and be like, so these are the sort of like things that we need to work out to make sure that doesn't happen. We have to think about machine identification and... Well, they have to be like three steps ahead of everyone else. That's right, yeah. Otherwise, those things do happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. um, so I found I find that being able to talk to and connect with people who have that kind of deep don- domain knowledge to be mm-hmm. really, just really super fascinating. And it allows me to kind of use those things that I learn and think about how they can impact design and basically the practice of design itself. Mm -hmm. Are there things like that from like working and living in the Netherlands or abroad in general that you think have shaped your design practice? I've worked quite a bit in my past on sort of uh, fintech and financial services. In fact, many of the years I spent at Microsoft was around personal finance management software, which you wouldn't think would be super interesting to work on, but I thought it was just like amazing to kind of learn about that. Um, And when I moved to the Netherlands, it's like personal banking works completely differently than it does here in the States. Like no one's ever heard of a check. Transfers are super easy. You're your bank account number is literally on like your business card and your website. Um, And it's just like everything is electronic transfer. And I got used to that, came back to the States in 2015 and had to write a check for my kids piano lessons. And I'm like, I don't have checks. And I told my bank, I'm like, what, do I still need these? And they're just like, uh, yeah, you order them and we'll send them to you. And I was like, it's paper and what, it was just, it seemed so absurd to me, like I had gone back in time. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting to me is that when you have designers who kind of haven't had that sort of personal experience with another system and how it works, they make all sorts of assumptions about the way things should work. And so you're creating solutions that are kind of like, well, obviously people will need to take a picture of their checks. And it's just kind of like, uh, no, like these people will never do a transfer with a check. And they're like, oh, there's no checks here. Like you don't get that perspective of like systems can fundamentally work differently mm-hmm. and even from just like a personal standpoint. And so I kind of think that exposure to the way government works differently, to the way things like the healthcare system works differently gives you such important perspectives on what it means to be a designer and it gives you kind of like that broad perspective that maybe helps protect you from your own biases about the way things should work. Yeah, it's like breaking down your foundation of your perspective of the world at a whole different level. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are things too, like for example, the things we argue about here from a political standpoint in the US, I, I talk a lot about how having lived in Europe, there's just like a baseline understanding that 
certain things are just things we all agree on. We agree that there's a social safety net. And then they argue about things that sit above that. Here, it's like, we're arguing about whether people should even have healthcare, and that's, to them, that's absurd, right? Yeah. This is just, you view healthcare as a fundamental human right, like that's the baseline that society sits on. So you can argue about like whatever is kind of above and beyond that, but they have that foundation there. And so being able to experience that has definitely informed my perspective on what kinds of opinions people come to the table with or you know what kind of perspective they come to the table with are you seeing that students that are coming out of design school do you feel that they're prepared to use technology or to grasp technology beyond just the fundamental tool that it is but as a system process that can be changed that isn't just the way it is Yeah, I think it depends on what you've studied and where you come to the design practice, right? So if you're coming with strategy lens that's very different than designers who are trained to basically execute on decisions that have already been made. I've said in the past that I I never hire a 22-year-old strategist because what kind of like life experience do you have? But I kind of think that there is something to kind of deciding where you want to sit in the decision making. Because if you're kind of at that design thinking level and being able to kind of shape the nature of design that will later be executed from a craft perspective, then that actually is kind of a more powerful place to sit in terms of the design practice. And so to aspire to that, I think, is really important um, because then, you know, it's got as a designer, you have that coveted seat at the table. But I think a lot of times students come out of school with a pretty narrow idea of what it means to be a designer, especially if you're working at the intersection of design and technology, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, now it's my job to kind of go to Amazon and be an interaction designer and I'll like get experience there and uh, maybe I'll go to Google (laughs) (laughs) as an interaction designer and get some experience there. And I think in some ways, the nature of the design practice is broadening in terms of design leadership, but then maybe it's also narrowing in terms of the actual execution of design. I used to joke when I was at Frog that I'd be like reviewing sort of internship applications and everybody would have these concept videos. And I'm like, I can predict what's going to be going on in this concept video is going to be somebody walking down like a beautiful street they're going to pull out their mobile phone and they're going to start like boop 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 um like (laughs) doing something and they're just like you know hip beautiful person with like a beanie on and (laughs) the music is going to be some sort of jaunty like little like ukulele music or something had a collection of these and it's like they all had the same story arc that's hilarious they were all designed for the same people and i was like (laughs) okay we're maybe narrowing things too much when it comes to what's expected to be the output of their work that said the craft was amazing Mm -hmm. but i'm just kind of like i found myself trying to look for something totally different even if it were aesthetically bad or (laughs) Mm -hmm. if it were something that just addressed something totally different I I don't know Um, there's something unique about the thinking behind it that's right yeah yeah well I mean and and there's something to be said about design kind of where it is in the process and at what level of thinking right right Um, 
and is is it realistic for somebody to think that they can be on that higher level like that early on in their career? What if there was a 22 year old that wanted to do strategy? Where do you start? Where would you start yeah. in that? Or would you work your way up and kind of gain that perspective through experience? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think part of my example of that is like, that was the wrong perspective to have. And I kind of think part of that is now having been in consulting for like nearly 10 years, I'm like, you you can have a young strategist. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe something like consultancy is the place to start because yeah. it gives you kind of that broad perspective of very, very different client needs, very, very different organizational needs. And you have to be really quick to grok whatever is going on in that organization in order to be able to do problem solving for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of exposure early on in your career, whenever young designers ask me, my advice is go to consultancy as soon as you can or agency and learn as much as possible. And then you'll be a pretty good product designer or design leader in potentially a larger internal design organization if you wanted to go that path and you wanted to basically ship products or what, whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, just try to learn a lot from sort of the different organizations that you'll encounter as well as the different domains because they have like really super different systems systematic needs. They have really different types of leadership, especially if you get to work in both, let's say, the private sector and the public sector. I think there are just, there are many potential paths to being a design leader, but I think sort of broadening your experience base in terms of your domain knowledge early on is probably one of the best things that you can do. I'm wondering, could you dive a little bit deeper in how you feel your own process in getting to that leadership role uh, has expanded or contracted, do you feel that you're still on a trajectory that allows you more opportunity to uh, curious, for lack of a better word? Yeah, that's a good question. I So one of the things that happened to me uh, when I was joining Artifact is, you know, I was like interviewing and one of the founders, Gavin, asked me, he was like, I notice a pattern in kind of your career is that you seem to spend two years at a job and then you <laughs> move on. And I was like, huh, I never really noticed that. I never even realized that. And he was, I was like looking at my CV and I was like, you're right. And what I realized was Usually, I don't leave an organization because it's horrible and I've reached a point of just hating it and I can't stand anybody and it's just the worst and I have to get out of here. Usually, it's just kind of like, I think I've sort of exhausted what I can learn and there's something kind of different or interesting out there. I know it's kind of corny to be like saying always be uncomfortable, but if I feel super comfortable, I know something's wrong and that I'm not like learning enough. So that's usually my cue to start looking for something new. I think as I've sort of progressed in my career, I spent many years in the trenches as basically an interaction designer and a design researcher kind of doing that sort of individual contribution work. Um, I think as I've progressed, I've been a, become a lot more interested in methods and how to actually sort of push my practice of design as well as the practice of uh, designers who I work with. And so 
one of the things that I'm doing now, for example, is thinking about designing for outcomes because I think in terms of the practice of user experience design, we've gotten really good at designing for direct benefit, but oftentimes we're just, our practice in terms of its methods is just like not equipped to think about societal outcomes. So if you think about direct benefit, it's like Uber is a great experience for customers, right? Like mm-hmm. it's like, it's hard to argue with that. It's pretty inexpensive and you get into a car and it's like as convenient as ever. Um, but if you think about sort of the broad societal impact and the impact at scale, you know, you have probably very likely an IPO coming up for them. And will any of those drivers get anything from this? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of them don't even make minimum wage, according to research that's come out around ride hailing. And uh, and also is creating more congestion in cities. There's now multiple forms of research that have shown that to be true in different cities like New York and Chicago. So how can we as designers start thinking about that more intentionally? Because we've gotten really, really good at like thinking about an individual user and how they use that product, but not thinking about like what happens with usage at scale. And so I'm trying to consider like how can we push the practice into that direction because we know that so many of these digital products have that unintended impact that we would want to address because I don't know most I don't know about you guys but most designers I know they're like I want to do design for good and so the idea that we're contributing to lots of like bad outcomes doesn't sit right with people. Do you think that's a limitation of human-centered design that as a process in the way that's set up and how you think about it because it is centered around the user at such a small level. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a function of user-centered design. I think good human-centered design takes Mm -hmm. other stakeholders into account, but oftentimes that's not actually what we're practicing, (laughs) especially in the digital technology world, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Usually it is strictly user-centered design that we're practicing, so we're not thinking about the fallout of people who have nothing to do with using our products. We're thinking about how best to appeal to the person who needs to just like order food and have it right now. We're not considering even other stakeholders like, you know, in Uber's case, like drivers. There's a lot of collective fallout from that. Even if the direct user experience in terms of the actual app for drivers is good. So I think it's a combination of actually considering a broader set of stakeholders, and that includes societal stakeholders, Mm -hmm. as well as thinking specifically about the outcomes and impact that you want your products and services to have. Are there particular exercises that you do with your team? If I'm a designer in school right now, being taught these methods, and oftentimes that video, it's nice and it's like very succinct and like, you know, it's very perfect. It's it's following that one user's journey of how they use this tool. But like, is there an exercise or a limitation or kind of a gap in knowledge in education right now about prompting the people to think in that way or something that they can do to get them thinking more about the larger system or society at that level. Right, so I think 
in terms of thinking about outcomes first is probably literally working backwards from the outcomes you want and thinking about what the solution could be. I sort of think in many ways, like there's no better place to do that than in design school because Mm -hmm. you don't have necessarily the strict constraints of the output having to be oriented around a single type of technology, for example. So I might have clients that you know, we work a lot in emerging technology, so there are things like AR, right? And they might come to us and be like, okay, it's, the technology is AR, now what do we do? And I think like if we have the ability to kind of think about like what are the, what are the outcomes we want first and think about sort of the challenges that we're trying to address or barriers we're trying to address and then consider what the solution might be. It might have nothing to do potentially with whatever the potential technology is that we're um, that we're envisioning as a solution. Mm-hmm. So famously, you know, just like that idea of like there's an app for that is like if somebody comes to you and is just like, here's the app to solve homelessness. I can guarantee like there's other uh, <laughs> ways of doing whatever it is you're trying to accomplish without thinking about the app first. Yeah. I think, yeah, if it would be interesting for design students to consider if you have a prompt about trying to help solve for a certain facet of homelessness, right? Think about what is the actual impact you want on society and then kind of consider like what are the things that can contribute to potential systemic change and then think about what are the intervention points that would make sense. So it might not have anything to do with digital technology in the end. It could Mm -hmm. be a change to a relationship like between um, caseworkers and uh, their clients. Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard to know where it'll land unless you investigate like what it is that you want the outcome to be Mm -hmm. yeah what about unintended outcomes yeah (laughs) this is the question so (laughs) the question I get most from technologists is we can't anticipate everything so how do we possibly design for things that we have no idea might happen like a million different things could happen and Kind of my response to that is, so basically you do nothing then? I mean, even if you think something might go wrong, you do nothing. So I think if there are some really strong contenders, anticipating them and kind of having a plan of responding to it if it does happen is not beyond the pale, right? Mm-hmm. So a good example of this is, I mean, I think it has in the last few months, but Facebook never goes down, right? There are yeah. more than two billion people. Two billion people using it. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like I A don't lot. even know what the number is now. Um, but they're still gaining users in many parts of the world. So, and it's a it's a platform that literally never goes down. There's some anticipation of potential unintended consequences that's happening there that allows them to respond to that. So, could we do the same thing on a human and societal level? Like, could we apply? that kind of approach and that kind of thinking to be being able to understand how, I don't know, better understand how hate speech propagates and be able to respond to it. I think we can, but I think the fundamental problem is when that kind of, uh, those kinds of solutions fly in the face of 
your core business model, that's where you get into trouble and that's why you don't have prioritization when it comes to that. I think for unintended consequences specifically, like here at Artifact, we're, we're creating tools, like we have the tarot cards of tech, and those are specifically questions about potential unintended consequences, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if you, as you're doing product design or strategy, start asking yourselves those questions, things like what happens when 100 million people use your product and sort of play out some of those scenarios, you should be able to respond to these things better, theoretically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Coming from a small liberal arts school uh, like PLU, where I, I teach, I think of it as it's a liberal arts education. It is getting a little bit of everything, um, whether it be a study in a specific area or a, a broad range of areas or studying away or fill in the blank. Do you? Yeah, so one thing that I've been working on lately is trying to figure out how to integrate systems thinking into in our practice. And so I think what that means for designers is using it as a method to understand the status quo, like what is happening now and what's gone wrong in order to potentially create solutions that would address some of the things that are happening or have happened. So when I talk about systems thinking, I'm talking about creating maps that show causal loops between things and identifying root cause. I think that's a good way potentially for designers to understand broad societal impact of the things that we're working on. So, um, and to know that there are other things at play as well and not just like, oh, when you design something, it's an interaction between a consumer and the company that you're working for. There are other things that are happening along the way that could affect basically the eventual impact of whatever it is you're designing. So, for example, I worked with uh, one of my colleagues last year on sort of the societal impact of social media and we created a systems map around what that's meant in order to be able to identify root cause. We took kind of an organic approach to it and so um, you know we talked to experts and did a lot of secondary research and investigated kind of the impact on the media and journalism, um, the impact on individuals, uh, Things like the hyper-growth imperative of technology companies and then sort of boiled it down to root cause. And I think creating causal loops like gives you really good practice in understanding what becomes vicious and what doesn't. Um, and so I think it, it's definitely something that designers can practice in order to understand like it's not just about an individual user journey like we're pretty good at creating like experience journeys <laughs> around someone's personal interaction with a product but kind of thinking about things from a systems perspective allows you to do is to look at all these other inputs whether it's like economic or political social environmental and apply these things to whatever it is that you're trying to solve for now and then figure out pinpoint areas of potential intervention or places where design solutions would be meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in grad school and thinking about system thinking but also reading about like wicked problems. Yes. System thinking is the tool 
to like map out a wicked problem as much as possible and right. then figure out where in that problem you're choosing to make the intervention exactly. and the potential up and downstream or interrelated consequences of that or impacts or right yeah i feel like our conversation turned heavy and deep right <laughs> it's so interesting because like my experience of you is not a heavy and deep person <laughs> And so, like, one of my questions was, was, like, obviously you spend a lot of your day thinking about some heavy things in some interesting areas that are wildly changing. How do you stay positive? I don't know. I, I kind of think my perspective is we can be part of changing the trajectory. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not even trying to be corny saying that. I think that's why I'm so interested in working in the method space, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are thinking about these things, right? And mm. it's really easy to be gloom and doom about all of it. But I think part of what's dangerous about kind of thinking that way is then you, you start asking questions like, well, if we can't an anticipate everything that'll go wrong, why anticipate anything that'll go wrong? And to me, I'm just like, no, I just want to like shake these people by the shoulders and be like, no, it's your job to like figure it out. That's actually a really great opportunity. And what I find is that a lot of people in our practice, they just they just don't know where to begin. They just need a prompt, right? Which is why like doing things like the tarot cards, those are literally just prompts. They're literally just questions. And the idea is if you start by asking the right questions, that's a pretty good start. But I think it's just literally giving them a starting point. And I think that kind of keeps me going because I know everybody in this industry has like the best of intentions. And so let's kind of use that to actually create and shape the world in a way that we want to see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. We like to conclude each episode of this season with a recommendation list from our guests. Oh my God. My recommendation requests are uh, a little lighthearted. Okay. So, uh, according to your <laughs> artifact profile, you like kung fu movies. Can you uh, maybe recommend a couple of good kung fu movies to watch? Okay, so I would say for me, the golden years of kind of kung fu movies was early Jet Li. So I would say watch the Once Upon a Time in China series. Yeah, so yeah. that's like one, two, maybe not three, kind of corny. One and two, um, for sure. There's some amazing fight scenes, including one that happens underneath a stage scaffolding. <laughs> so it's like whatever it is, like three feet high, and they're fighting under there, which is amazing. And there's also a movie called Fang Sayuk, which he was in in the early 90s. Jet Li is my favorite, by the way. Like His early movies are just incredible. And in that, in that movie, he has, oh my god, it's another fight scene in a like a building scaffolding of bamboo. And that's with the mother of, I think, what becomes his eventual love interest. And she is just like so bomb. And it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I would definitely recommend those. And basically any old Bruce Lee is like, you know, those yeah. are like the classics. Yeah. What's something, an article, book, anything that you, um, you've read recently that you felt was really impactful 
but you feel like hasn't been read enough. Hmm. I mean, I have one that I feel like is being read pretty widely right mm-hmm. now, which is Anand Giratata's uh, Winners Take All, mm-hmm. and it's about how corporate philanthropy has kind of taken over the world and we need to do something about it. I think it was one of those books that kind of changed my perspective on uh, how the economy works right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to think about anything else I've read. Um, I, I just finished reading um, Cat Holmes' Mismatch. Any designer, I think, needs to read that. Um, basically, it sort of outlines the meaning of inclusive design. Um, and I think it's really important for us to not get away from this idea of continuing to be human in our work. Uh, I think it's really easy when, especially because I work kind of in the developing method space, it's really easy to get into the space of abstracting everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really dangerous. And as long as we stay, stay like really tied and connected to people and the problems that we're solving, trying to solve from a human and um, people perspective, uh, it's hard for us to go wrong. I hear you love pens. I do. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite type of pen do you like? I love the Papermate Flare. I have one right here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That one is my favorite. I do a lot of sketch notes and it is like just it's the best for that I also like Muji pens when I'm looking for something that's a little uh let's say like 0.5 millimeter or 0.35 I think in the Muji pens is really good so whenever I'm near Muji I'll just pick up just stacks um yeah so Papermate Flare it's my jam but the one thing I don't like about it is it's not there aren't refills so one thing that's nice about Muji pens, especially the ones they sell in Japan, are they're refillable. So, Papermate Flare, make a refillable pen. I'll feel like I'm wasting less plastic. Uh, but yeah, still my favorite pen. Nice. Do you have a recommendation for the best bike to get around Seattle in, especially with all the hills? Oh, I am, uh, I am really bad at this question, just because I ride like a an old steel bike from the 70s and um basically because it's an outdoor animal i don't ever have to i don't really have to take care of it i have a giant chain lock i brought this bike from holland with me and i basically find my if the hill is steep enough i'm walking up it there's a reason they're called push bikes so um (laughs) i would say get a nice like electric bike um, if you're going to want to be biking everywhere up and down the hills in Seattle. If you're a novice to biking, try to live or work near the Burt Gilman path because it's flat. <laughs> 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 I do love the, the line bikes, though. Those are electric, and so yeah. they're pretty zippy. Um, cars in Seattle, I th- think sometimes they seem like they actively want to kill you if you're a cyclist (laughs) so always make eye contact people when you're biking (laughs) cheryl thank you so much for your time greatly appreciate it thank you it's a lot of fun this is design school is recorded in the field where design happens the music for this is design school is composed and recorded by michael r clark you can find michael online at musiclabtacoma.com For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. 
We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at TIDS Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.